Welcome to Local Share Green Action Podcast. This show is produced by Go Green Locally, a 501c3 nonprofit providing tools and resources for people that are looking for ways to take even more successful local action that makes a difference for our people and our planet. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with someone who worked over 25 years for the government through an environmental services company as a code enforcement officer and six years as a town manager in eastern Pennsylvania and central highlands of Maine. I'm speaking with Richard Fisher. Richard, who likes to be called Rick, was hired by RKR Hess Associates in 1988, an engineering firm in the Pocono Mountains, to conduct population testing, hydraulic conductivity testing, and GIS base mapping. In 1989, Rick received his certification from Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection as a sewage enforcement officer. In January of 1990, Rick left RKR Hess Associates to establish Fisher Environmental Services, providing SEO services to local townships. He added code enforcement, building codes, and zoning services as his business grew. In 2016, over 25 years of testing, on-lot systems design, permitting and complaint investigations, and court action to protect our environment from polluters, Rick was promoted to manager in Upper Mount Bethel Township. And in 2019, Rick accepted the position of town manager in St. Albans, Maine. Rick retired from public service in November of 2022 and moved to Ridgecrest, California to be closer to family. He now enjoys video editing, production, songwriting, and recording, nature photography, and writing fictional stories based on his experience experiences as a public official. Welcome to the show, Rick. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to speak speak with you and learn more about your path of green action working as a code enforcement officer and as a town manager. What planted the seeds for you initially to want to get involved in environmental work originally? When I was um, 13, I never told anyone this, when I was 13, um, I wrote to Greenpeace because I saw uh, on 60 Minutes or some news magazine show, I saw a story about them going out in the boats and, and blocking the whaling boats. And, and I wanted to go on the whaling, I wanted to go on the boats and block the whaling boats. I, I, I thought this was the coolest thing to go out there and protect your environment. So I wrote to them and said, I want to, I want, what do I got to do to get in the boat? And they wrote back and said, send us money. <laughs> we have people for the boats. We have professionals for the boats. We need money to do that. And I was 13. I was disappointed. But then I got got on their mailing list and I was a member of Greenpeace for a while when I was young. And then I was a member of Nature Conservancy after that. Same thing. You know, how can I help? It was like, send us money. We got professionals for that. So I never really, I was always an environmentalist by, in, in my heart. That's, I really was. And, and so when I started getting into when I started getting into the engineering end of, of, of the business, when I moved to the Pocono Mountains, my kid was born, we moved to the Pocono Mountains to give our kid a better life. And an uncle owned, was one of the owners of our care Hess associates. He gave me an opportunity to start working there and, and to learn environmental testing. And so, and the purpose of that environmental testing was for development. It wasn't for, it wasn't for, it wasn't for the, protect the environment as much as it was state regulations for on-lot septic systems for individual homes for on-site septic systems had been had advanced to to the degree where 
you had to do soils testing to determine that the soils were capable of handling the sewage and renovating it since you're recharging the groundwater with the wastewater. So the idea was filter out the, the bad stuff and, and then let the soils do their work. So you had, to, you had to learn about soils. You had to learn about, you had to learn how to do testing, soils testing, percolation testing for large systems, for community systems, for like somebody wants to put in condos and they don't have city sewer. And that's the thing in the Pocono Mountains, there was very little city sewer. So in order to have development there, they had to do on lot. So some would do like, would do this, would do big drain fields and we'd have to do hydraulic conductivity testing, which is testing in the fragile pan on the soil to determine the vertical movement of the water. So we could determine a rate for um, gallons per minute. And so essentially when I became a sewage enforcement officer or an SEO, um, my job was to make sure that every permit that I issued was based on soils that were suitable for recharge of groundwater um, and for treatment of, of, the, of the septic. So while it was on a small scale, it's not really a small scale when you have a hundred lot subdivision or you have a 200 lot subdivision and you're testing primary reserve areas for each one. There's no city sewers proposed in the future. So they have to rely on that groundwater recharge system for their sewage. And um, if you don't do it right, you'll contaminate wells because they're also drilling wells hundred feet away from these septic systems. So I took the job seriously because I realized I could have an impact on improving our environment development and and as much as we hate to say it that kind of thing never stops it, it you can you can restrict it you can control it but you can't stop it so i felt that by being good at what i did in my job i could affect i could affect a, a better quality of life for people and a better environment that they would live in and a, a perfect example of this is there was a subdivision proposed um, maybe 70 lots. And I made a joke. There was a little cul-de-sac that they were proposing. And I made a joke. They named it after all their kids. And I knew the man really well. And I said, it's, I've never had a road named after me. Well, when the, I was joking. And then in the preliminary plan, it, it was Fisher Place. He put in he made it Fisher Place. Now that sounds like you're going to get something for it. You know, like that's a bad thing. Like you don't, you don't want to do that. And I was kind of appalled. Like, I didn't mean it. Like, don't put it on the plan. But when we tested all the lots, I failed them all because the soils were, were really poorly, poorly drained soils and you can't put a septic on them. So I, I failed all those lots and it's probably like five lots on the cul-de-sac all failed end of the cul-de-sac like without the lots there's no road so fisher place died because i tested it and, and made sure that and followed my rules and followed followed the regulations to make sure that and they could have went back in with soil scientists and they could have argued them but but basically they were poorly drained soils and then there shouldn't there shouldn't be development there i mean there has to be areas you protect yeah so that's, it really also does a great job of protecting people's health because you yes. know yeah, that's seeping into well water and, you know, people are not always aware, especially if they have chlorine systems that are treating their well water for any reason, so. And most people don't have chlorine systems that treat the well water or ultraviolet systems. Most people drill the well and drink the water. So they, you know, they don't, they'll do a test. The state required wells are very poorly regulated in Pennsylvania, where they were, and individual wells are poorly regulated. So the, the well driller has to do a test to make sure there's no he does a total coliform test on the, after he drills it, and then that's it. 
and they don't if they get something then they have they'll shock chlorinate it and then then after two weeks they test it again it's fine they, they don't even tell the homeowner they're just like yep there's your well and you know and <laughs> and people drink the water and we had contaminated wells in our town you know in the in the in the mount bethel village where the houses are close together and the septics were built in the 30s and 1940s and when the houses were built and they used old cesspools and I had wells 10 feet away. I had wells five feet away from septics and from cesspools. And yeah, and they were shallow dug wells and they were they were contaminated with groundwater. And and that's a, that poses a real environmental challenge because you've got to find a solution and it's not going to be city sewers because of the cost. So you have to find a solution on a, on a postage stamp plot. And sometimes those only solutions were put in a holding tank and pump it out. And that's expensive. That's, you know, people use a thousand gallons of water a week and, you know, 375, a thousand gallons, you spend a thousand dollars a month or more pumping out your tank to live there. So there were some really poor options, but that's because they didn't have the soils and that's because they developed it before we had regulations. So, yeah, I was really proud of that work and, and knew I was doing something positive for the environment and for the people and for their health. How, yeah. how did your experience in code enforcement then inform your approach to the environmental issues at a, at a municipal level? Uh, code enforcement, one, one of the, I think one of the key things, whether it's code enforcement or sewage enforcement, is that as a code officer, when you, as a, as a representative of the town or the township, when you see a violation if you don't report it, you're as liable as the person. You're as liable as the person who's committing the violation. You you inherit a liability if you don't report it. Now, there's lots that ignore that and don't report it. And every once in a while, there's some town official that gets nailed because they knew and, and let it go. My position was: if you fill in that wetland and you don't have a permit, or if you you pipe that stream and you don't have a permit and you know and i come out there to do some code enforcement inspection and i see an environmental violation i'm notifying the county county conservation district or the dep and say there is a violation or potential violation here and you need to investigate it and then a lot of times i would come out there with those individual individuals uh, representatives of those departments um, to do those inspections um, because i was usually the one that was turning people in didn't make me real popular, but what imagine? But your job isn't your job isn't based upon popularity. If I'm a if I'm popular at what I do, when I was doing it, if I was popular, then I wasn't doing my job because yeah. my job was to say no to people. No, you can't fill that wetland. No, you can't put your shed within ten feet of the property line. No, 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 no. People come in and say, "Can I want to do this? I want to do that." No, we had a developer come in. Scared the whole town. We're going to put in 1,700 units. But I'd been on the property, and I knew the property was wetland, steep slope wetlands, and shallow soils to bedrock. And everyone was freaking out. And I kept going, he doesn't have, and he showed, he showed houses, little houses, and little plans. He showed, he showed these, he showed this, this wonderful sketch plan. And he laid it right on top of uh, the, the natural features map. 
So you could see the wetlands, like underneath the houses, like the 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 the, the boundaries of the wetlands, underneath houses and streets, and I, and people were freaking out. And I was like, he'll never be able to do this. This this this. There's too many wetlands here. There's too much steep slope. There's too much bedrock. He's he's not going to be able to put 1,700 units here. I bet he can't put a third of that in here. And then with that, the amount of roads and he has in here. He'll never be able to make it profitable for him. You know, like he has to get that number. What is it? It used to be I was working for the engineer. You have to have a yields on properties, 65% yield on lots to justify putting a road in. And that was when roads were $75,000 a mile. Now they're over $100,000 a mile. So, you know, it's you have to be able to justify that you have enough lots to, for the improvements you have to make the stormwater improvements, the road improvements, all of that has to be, those costs have to be absorbed and you start to make a profit. So you need like a 65% yield on property. And, uh, and I would sit with developers uh, working for the engineer trying to explain to them that this 100 acre property that we just did, we just completely canvassed and checked. We, we, we flagged all the wetlands. We, we sketched it all out. We looked at the soil types that are on the property and we'd say, look, this 100 acre property, maybe you can get three lots out of it. Maybe you can get five, you know, along the main road, but you're not going to get like, you're not going to be able to put a road through here and, and put numerous, you know, numerous lots in because the, the environmental the, the property just environmentally cannot support that type of improvement. There were sad days for some developers because they had, you know, big plans, yeah. but that's, but that was, that was our job was to make sure that they followed those rules. And that was as a code officer. And as a, and then as a manager, my job was to make sure that the people underneath me, the zoning officers, the code officers, the, you know, the environmental officers that the sewage officers that they all were doing their job is if I was doing it so that that's frustrating because you don't always get people to, to live up to the standard you're trying to set, even though the regulations are clear, you know, I saw a lot of crooked stuff, you know, and that's a shame. A lot of developments shouldn't be there, especially in the Poconos. You know, there's some, there's some townships that never should have been developed the way they were, but that's here and there, you know, that's, that's it's someone lacking, Ethics. Anybody that's going to get into these types of careers have to have a thick skin and, and yep. be to toe the line. It doesn't sound like an easy, easy job. It's uh, it's fun, but it, it, you know, there's there's good parts to it. I, I loved doing all the work that I did. I did, but yeah, environmentally, that was it was a challenge. I I I had a guy who was like, I'm filling this wetland in the front of my property, 126 acres, but in the front. At the, which wasn't even in the front on the road. He he had like a he had like a flagpole property, but there was one section along the, his front line that was beautifully wet. I mean, it had cattails. It had, and and he he says I'm I'm going to bulldoze that. And I was like, you're going to bulldoze that? When we find out about it, we got to turn. We got to I got to talk. I got to call the Corps of Engineers because that's a high quality wetland. You can't mess with it. I'm going to fill it in. I'm going to fill it in. Well, he no sooner dragged his backhoe and his his dozer 10, 15 feet with dirt into that wetland. And, and I got a phone call because there was an environmentalist that lived nearby, saw him do it, called us up, called the Corps of Engineers, $1,000 fine. There were bog turtles in there. 
so they so bog turtles are endangered in Pennsylvania. So you know, they went out and did a study. They stopped them and they did a study and they found bog turtles and they and they made them do re, you know reclamation, but then they find them five hundred thousand dollars. And you know, he well, they find him five hundred thousand dollars, but it was contingent upon him if he did the cleanup, they would it would be reduced dramatically, but he had to do the cleanup, which he did. And he was like, I will never fill a wetland again. And he was one of those developers. He was a builder. So he was like, always, I want to build. I want to build. And he, I mean, they handed, they handed it to him. I had another guy. He, he was another, he was a small time uh, contractor. He filled in, a, he filled in a wetland. And then he had me come out and didn't tell me he filled it. And he had me come out and test it um, for, for, because he wanted to put a couple houses on these two lots. And so he filled, he filled this wetland. And I didn't know he filled the wetland because he had done it and let it sit for a couple of years. And I came out and all the water in the wetland, when you put when you put downward pressure, it's it's just not, it's like a sponge. The water wicks up into the soils that you place down and then it reduces the soils in there. And so so, you know, he may have been thinking, oh, if I put two feet of good topsoil on top of this wetland, you know, it'll pass. It'll pass testing. And no one will ever know. Well, it wicks right up to the top. So when I tested it, I'm like, this is wetland. And it looks like someone put fill in it because you can tell as when you once you start studying soils when somebody's put fill down there's all this it doesn't match the natural soil the the top the top soil layer which is usually the what they call the a horizon is usually um, the, a, a darker color and so you'll have this light light brown soil and all of a sudden there's a, a, a straight line and then there's this dark brown soil and then there's the regular soil below it and the structure of that soil it has a structure to it that naturally. And, and that'll be compacted and you'll see the compaction in the soil and you'll be like, what, did you fill this? Because it looks like this was filled. Oh, no, no, no. Well, he got turned into the Corps of Engineers, not by me this time, but he got turned into the Corps of Engineers and they had satellite photographs of his machine pushing the dirt into the wetland. And they met him on the site and he was, he was going to argue, I never filled anything. He was going to argue and they pulled out the photographs from the satellite and went, here you go. So this is you and your here you are here here's your here's your backhoe here's the wetland here's you filling it and uh, yeah those lots still sit today forty years later undeveloped you know and uh, he had to pull all of that soil out and restore it and so yeah you have an impact and and you also deal with you know politicians that get elected that want to change and and don't want to address environmental issues and want to just develop. That's the hardest part of the job. Was I mean, it really brings up a lot of, of information that I think, you know, most people don't think about. Is there like efforts by any of these organizations to educate the public? I mean, um, like it's down around. When I was when I was younger, we did we did uh, a friend and I who owned a, a septic company, we we did seminars around the two counties on how to maintain, how, how to take care, how to test your well. We would have, we had someone that owned a, a well testing company or owned a, a laboratory. He came in, um, his name was George Prosser and he had Prosser Labs and he would he would do a lecture and then I would do a lecture on on the testing. And and then this guy would do a test, would talk about how to maintain your septic system. On that level, yeah, on, on the level of, on, on the level of on a township wide organized effort, it takes the citizens. It takes the town has to have the courage to to create an environmental advisory committee. Mm -hmm. um, 
most towns have an economic development committee. They may have a recreation committee. They may have a, you know, a, you know, committee. Of, well, they'll have a planning commission. They'll have all those environmental advisory committee that will review the plans that come in for environmental regulations. And for a long time in Mount Bethel, we had a chair of that who was an avid environmentalist and she was an educated environmentalist. And so she she would review the plans like an engineer. And and a lot and a lot of engineers didn't like her, but but she would, you know, she would point out, you know, you can't do this here, you can't do that there. You know, how how come your plan when you did the original subdivision 10 years ago and you cut it into two lots of 20 acres each? How come the wetland was much larger then? And now you want to put like a road in with 15 lots. Now the wetland that you've mapped is only half that size. What happened to the wetland in those 15 years? And they're like, oh, there must be a mistake in the mapping. And then, you know, and then she'd go out and check. And then she'd say, well, I went out and the wetland is exactly the way you had it 15 years ago. So you're not being, you're not accurately representing you got to be careful what you say. The boundary of those wetlands on this property, and you need to represent them more closely to where they what what you had before. That was that was having someone like that on a local level was amazing. And then, but then you know she moved on because sure in life you know she did it for several years. Someone else came on board who was more closed about their meetings and she created a different set of problems because she was trying to hold everything close to the vest and not want anybody to know what they were doing. And then you have to have transparency in government. You have to have. So, but, but environmental advisory committees and citizens have to stand up, come to meetings, you know? So in the one, in the one town, Upper Mount Bethel Township, where I worked for several years and ended up as a manager, there was always people at the meetings. There was always 20 to 30 people at the meetings that, we had a period of time where we had so many people to meetings that we were making popcorn, you know, for people to have, because they were there for so long, you know, because everyone has to have a comment and it takes and meetings last a long time. And we had a township supervisor. He could have been a national politician if he had morals. Well, then again, I don't know if that matters anymore, but he was, he, he personally attacked people. He let meetings go till two 30 in the morning. Wow. He, he would just go on and on. And the meetings just never ended. So we would serve food and drinks to people so that they could, you know, and take, we had to take breaks. And I remember one time it was like 1230 in the morning and he had everybody so spun around that everyone kind of, it got so tired. Everyone was so tired. They just went, what were we talking about? What was the motion? I was like, oh my God, this is, you know, it was. But you have you have people like that, and they have a they have a, a big influence on the community. So you need community leaders to come forward who are environmentalists who want to protect the environment. Mount Bethel has gone through a real change. I left the, the citizens elected uh, people who wanted to develop, and I mean warehouses, city sewer, and this is the most rural township in Northampton County, Pennsylvania. It is, it's. Its eastern boundary is the Delaware River. Its northern boundary is the Appalachian Trail and the Blue Mountain. It is a rural township, and they wanted to put sewers in and take this um, large industrial tract that was um, once owned by electric company and develop it in, and basically level a mountain and put warehouses on it. And, and they're still trying to do it, and, and they had enough votes to have a majority 
And so they needed city sewer and they needed to hook into the, the town of uh, the borough of Portland sewer plant. I just remember that the cost of just the sewer line was $6 million. Oh. And we were proposing, and I was proposing as the manager, that they simply treat the, the malfunctions in the center of the town with a drip irrigation or spray irrigation system using the parkland that they already owned. And that way they would reground, the, they would recharge the groundwater. The system would be, would be more, would be small and it would only serve existing uses. So you couldn't develop on it, but you could at least solve environmental problems, improve people's health and, and have enough reserve in the system that as more houses and these substandard systems failed, you'd have enough, you'd have enough capacity for them to hook in but they didn't want that they wanted the six they wanted to expand the sewer plant into the river you know the whole, the whole nine yards and and um, when I left that's that's what they were working on and uh, someone bought the land the developer bought the land and and uh, and was developing I think it's called River Point now I think they're still working it through but uh, but it'll forever change that town environmentally and plus you know industrial wise it's a Rural town, and now it's going to have millions, millions square foot warehouses in it. You know, and I've seen that all over Pennsylvania, so it's not anything new. But, right. but it's it has a huge impact on the community, mm-hmm. and there has been an environmental group of people that have bounded together and sued them. They they got together and sued another individual who was bringing in what's called I call Echo Line, but he was bringing in basically sludge treated with concrete dust so it limes it concrete dust has lime in it so it gives it it's like a liming action and you give it to the farmers the idea is it's it's a pretty simple concept of risk management do you take the sludge from a treatment plant and put it into uh into a landfill and if the landfill liner leaks potentially potentially pollute you know a major city or, or water supply like detroit or something like that or do you take it and spread it out in the farmland and use it to, to uh, help with the crops, you know, increase the yield of the crops? And, and, and so there were, so the state used to call it sludge. They, they changed the name to biosolids based on EPA so that it had a nicer sound. And then this company came in and, and got a permit to start spreading it. And there's class A and class B. And 90 citizens of this town, up above the township, sued to have them stop and ended up with a court settlement where they could only do type A and they had to meet certain restrictions. And they had an impact. Those folks had an impact. But you know, that company countersued every individual. I mean, it was it was nasty. But you know, the citizens in that sense won. You know, it's, I mean, they, they, they got it peeled back at least and stopped. And, and I'll tell you what, you're a farmer. Someone says, here's free material to, you know, here's free manure. Sounds good initially. You go, oh, but you got to keep it a hundred feet from the property line and 300 feet from any well on adjoining properties. You think, and here's a, here's a, here's a plan showing where you can do it. They didn't follow that plan. They went out there and they threw it on their freaking thing on their, their tractor and they spread it around the farm where they, wherever they farmed. I measured where they were 90 feet from a well with that sludge, you know, the neighbor's well. They, they didn't, for them, it was like, I'm spreading it on my farm. I don't care what your maps say, I'm spreading it on my farm. And so they were irresponsible. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them were. 
Well, those are all the, the negative stories. Were there stories also where you were able to collaborate on occasion with local businesses and residents? Yeah, uh, we have. We were able to, to, to find acceptable, well, you know, we had a, we had Dollar General wanted to come in and, and the lot was not so good, but we found some soils that with an alternative system, if they would consider the alternative system, it would, it would, it would recharge the groundwater. It would be clean when it did it. It would, it would have tertiary treatment on it. It was, it was much more expensive than a regular one. They could have said no and walked, but they said, you know what, we'll, we'll commit to this. And so we, so we got them to do something superior. And a lot of, a lot of the times we worked with developers to come up with better quality systems and and also to protect the wetlands or to to preserve areas of the town. I mean, our park that they had in Upper Mount Bethel, the 90 acre park was donated. And and so that was and so the the wetlands that are on that property are well protected and and, and you know and even have an endangered salamander on them and 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 so and there, but we have ball fields and we have soccer fields we you know they 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 did a wonderful job and they created a nice playground but at the same time they protected the slopes they protected they they made sure the stormwater controls were, were solid and and state-of-the-art now a town when a town does that it's a little different than a developer but you, we've worked with developers to do that too and to to come up with things that that are better for the community and not just dump it down the river so yeah, we've had we've had some, we've had I think we've had a lot of success in that respect with developers, you know, and also simple things like you know developer LTS builders had bought some property and they were going to develop it, and the town had something called the One Good Acre Ordinance that was upheld by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court as being the only ordinance that you could actually have more than an acre and a half in size. The Supreme Court ruled before it was a taking of land if you had more than an acre and a half in size. So Bethel did this, created what was called one good acre where you had to X out if you had wetlands on the property, if you had right-of-ways on the property, if you had steep slopes on the property, you couldn't include those in the size of your lot. The lot had to be one good acre. And if your soils were shallow to bedrock or water table, you had to have a three acre lot minimum. So there was a developer who sued because he wanted to have one acre lots and he sued because he would have had three to five acre lots and that would ruin just development. So he sued and went all the way to the state Supreme Court and they ruled in favor of the town. And after that, we were sending copies of our zoning ordinance, that section on one good acre to towns all over the Commonwealth. And, but then after two years after the Supreme Court rules on it, there's an election, the, the pendulum swings the other way a group gets in, elected officials get in, and on a 3-2 vote, they repeal it and make it one acre. And during those two years before the next election, developers came in and did 170-acre lots of the division, one-acre lots. The other one did 90-acre subdivision, one-acre lots. And then two years later, the town voted one of those guys out, got the majority back to 3-2 the other way, and they voted it back in and even made it more stringent. And then the developers had to follow that. And but that was, but but the one developer comes in and he says, okay, I drilled a well. And this is how you don't really research your land, right? I drilled a well on my first lot and he got lots approved. He had like 70 lots approved. I drilled a well. I went 750 feet. I hit sulfur water. He goes, I, I drilled another well. I'm 720 feet. I hit sulfur water. He goes, I, you know, I had to put all these systems in for these homes. This is, it's people aren't going to want this because of the smell. 
And we were like, well, did you ever think of using a pounder instead of a driller? There's still a guy who's running around with a pounder in Northampton County. And it's like, I, I gave the developer his number and said, here's his phone number. You might want to call him. They don't go 750 feet. So, and, you know, you get a better quality water and you're not playing around in a sulfur aquifer. And uh, a week later, I saw the guy out there. A pounder takes a week to pound a well because they're basically pounding their way through the bedrock and where a driller goes straight through and they basically seal it as they, as they're drilling. So the seams get sealed, but when you pound, you, you fracture just like fracturing for oil and you fracture for water and around 150, 200 feet, you end up with enough water to support a house. So we were like, so he ended up using a pounder on all the rest of his lots. And he was able to provide clean water for the people and, and without having to put in expensive systems that they would have to maintain. Those kind of things are, you don't realize you're going to be that helpful until after it's done. But that was, that was something that we did. Most importantly as citizens is the citizens have to show up and they have to demand that, if there's, that the regulations be enforced. And that means with the state too, with the conservation district, that you have to call them up and you have to say, hey, you have to come out here. And um, you have to check what this guy's doing. Um, some builders are great about it. They 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 donate the lands to the town as 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 um, as um, preserves. Uh, we had one donate 170 acres to us. It was an old sand quarry that had been. It had 13 ponds on it. Most of them were filtration ponds, but over the years, you know, had been used for for 40 50 years, and it, it sort of restored itself and it's and the, the ponds started having the ponds had fish in them and and there was wildlife there and we saw eagles there and we I mean it was it was really it was became a really cool environmental place and they couldn't really do anything with it because it had already been worked and so they donated it to the town and the town turned it into a preserve and the whole point was we're going to turn it into we're going to give it to you but we want to, it's going to be a preserve and so so yeah, so that Mount Bethel Preserve is is in place, and and so you have to really work hard to get that. It's not like like the town has to work really hard. There has to be deeds written up. The lawyers have to be involved. There has to be there has to be the deeds have to be written in such a way that there's restrictions on the deeds so they can never be developed. Should town ever some group gets in gets elected, they can't just sell it or say, oh, well, we're going to develop it now. You know, we're going to do something. You have to preserve it. So it was really important that the town follow through on their end and make sure that they did all the legal things necessary to make sure that that, that land stays preserved. And then we can then you can go for grants and get grants to, you know, to put walking paths in and and and, and make it a, a real, you know, that kind of thing becomes such an advantage to a municipality. And people want to move there. People want to live there. People want to be a part of it because now there's recreation involved in it you know so in a lot of towns i could tell you mount bethel would have 30 40 people in every meeting hamilton township in monroe county that i was a sewage officer for for 20 years lucky if they had three people in a meeting i mean no one ever came to their meetings now they ran a good town but they just no one really cared about what they did it just there was just no it was no rising up. There was no nothing, you know. If somebody wants to get more educated on these topics, like where do you suggest that they go? Look? To your, 
I think the, uh, you want to get more, go to your town meetings and sit and listen. You know, just listen and, and then follow through. When a developer comes in with a plan for a property, you know, that plan's public record. So go in the next day after the meeting and ask to see it or, or do a right to know request to, to, to review the plan. And you might not know what you're looking at at first, but it won't take you long to figure out what a road profile is, what a natural features plan is, what a wetland boundary plan is. And you can, you know, and you can start to see what that development's, how that's going to impact the land. And then, so I always think you have to really kind of self-educate yourself, but you go to meetings and you find out what's going on um, at those meetings. And then you can be a voice because once you start to educate yourself on what's happening, what's being proposed, like a good example here where I live now in Richmond, how many, in, in every town, how many times have you heard, oh, I heard they're putting a Wendy's over on that lot. Oh, oh I heard they're going to put a, a, some apartments over there. But is that true? I don't know. But that's what I heard. Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or, or you see something in the paper that says, oh, somebody proposed to put in a shopping center with, you know, five stores and an anchor store. And but they don't say what those stores are. You know, it's important that you go to those meetings and find out exactly what that is and what land they're doing it on and how will that impact, you know, traffic, how will it impact the environment, how will it impact, you know, your daily life so that you can speak up about it because if people don't come to the meetings and speak up about their concerns it's black and white here's the regulations we've met the regulations and we have to approve it you know if you've met the regulations that we have set forth in our ordinances then we have to approve this by law we can't say no just because we don't like it because you've met our requirements but if people come up and say well did they really meet this requirement did they really meet that requirement did you know like what, what about this? What about that? What about, you know, I thought there was a natural spring on that property. You know, we, I, I was on a property where I was doing soils testing and I was just, it was woodland and I was walking through the woodland and I found a natural sand spring. And, and I notified the company that was going to develop it and said, you know, you have a natural sand spring there. They're kind of rare um, in this area. And they, you know, they, they need to be protected. So, you, you know, you, I don't know how you're bringing your driveway in, but you want to not bring your driveway across that. Plus, your driveway will never stay. Your driveway will, will keep sinking into the sand. It won't work. You can fill it as much as you want. It's a spring. You don't get rid of springs. So, and he was like, oh, I'm not going to, and he said, where is it? And he was fascinated too. The, the owner of the property was like, I had no idea this was here. So there's, there's, there's people by walking on the properties, if you're allowed to walk on them to see, to see what's there or to ask people that previous owned it, what's on that property that they, they want to develop? Is there anything unique? Then you can go to the town meetings and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, it's, it's, uh, you can't rely always on the state, you know. You what? You, keep you can't always rely on the state agencies oh. to regulations, you know, and you can't rely on a developer to always be true much as you'd like them to be they're trying to develop the property so, i mean it's their i have no idea <laughs> what any training in environmentalism what's that yeah. I, I think the, the thing with training environmental okay so 
here, if you if you get if you get a degree, you go to college, you get a degree in environmental uh, studies, and whether it's however it is, how, how are you going to get paid? You have there's two ways you can, you can make a living at it. You make a living at it working, um, providing services to developers who who need to have those services in order to so that they can show in the plans that you've met state regulations, or you get hired as a state regulator to reviews those plans. <laughs> I mean, there, I mean, there isn't really much in between that. There's no one that hires environment. There are people that will hire environmentalists to review plans that are, that are an objection to that. But then you're talking about citizens that are pulling money together in order to, or an agency, you know, like like an environmental group that's that's established, like Sierra Club. Sierra Club, because of the Appalachian Trail, where, where we used to live, because of the Appalachian Trails there, Sierra Club would be involved in a lot of the decision. They'd be involved in a lot of reviews because it affected, they were in charge of the, maintaining the Appalachian Trail and they wanted a buffer. So they would see anything coming near the buffer and they were, you know, Sierra Club would show up. River Keepers was another one. You want to expand that plant and dump into the river, the River Keepers are going to fight you in court. So there are established groups that you know, are thorn in the side of developers, but have a very useful purpose because they are basically saying, if your if your laws say you must first, and in Pennsylvania this is true, you must first consider groundwater recharge of 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 treatment plants, you know, the ultimate discharge, that you have to first consider that before you can increase the size of that plant and dump more water into the river and down into the, you know, down to the ocean. You first have to do a study to determine whether or not the land you you're, you're developing has the ability to take the sewage and the, the wastewater and recharge it. So a lot of developers go, oh, guess what? There isn't enough room because we have all these houses here. <laughs> we have all this, then we have stormwater here, and we have the roads here, and yeah, guess what? There's no room to do any kind of you know to put the sewage back into the ground. So we're going to go to the river, and the river keepers would sue, saying, "Well, did you did you?" Did you like study it? Did you do testing to determine whether or not their soils are available? Can you can you modify the size of your development and provide some land so you can do groundwater recharge? And maybe you don't get all you want, but but we you know so so river keepers would sue successfully to force these developers and these towns to consider the alternatives that are required by the regulations. Now you would think the regulators would do that, but no, not always. And that has a lot more to do with, okay, so they're tied to, they're, they're an agency working for the, say DEP is an agency that works for the state of Pennsylvania. Okay, the director of DEP is in a political appointed by the governor. So some big time developer in Pennsylvania has a run-in with, with someone in DEP in the department who's doing their job enforcing their regulations. He calls up the governor's office. Governor's office calls up the director of DEP. Director of DEP calls up his boss and says, what's going on? Why is this? Why are you guys? We, they want to fast track this development. Why are you guys giving them a hard time? That's the real life political process. And that hasn't changed in years. And it's never going to change because that's human nature. So, you know, you're not always, you can't always rely on the regulators to regulate because the developers have a way to influence that politically. And doesn't mean they won't enforce them, but, but no. They'll, yeah. they'll, For sure. Matter of interpretation on that, on that regulation, on how it has to be, how much has to be done. So 
that so so yeah so if you want to be educated you want to go get a degree well you're going to either work for the regulators or you're going to work for the developers because there's nothing in between really that you can make a living doing that kind of work and so you know you have to choose your poison sort of or you can get a job with an environmental group but they already got a lot of people i mean so 10,000 15,000 i don't know how many people get environmental degrees every year 50,000 100,000 how many jobs are there in, in government for environmentalists? How many jobs, you know, are there with developers, engineers? There's a lot more with the engineers. Mm. So, you know, and, and the industry has an impact on what's written. I never, you never forget that regulations are written as they're being written, as they're being adopted, there is input from industry and th that's affected by that. And they input on those regulations to try to water them down or try to reduce their impact on their developments. So you also have that end too, that affects, you know, decision-making when it comes to writing regulations. So I have two questions. So one is when you want to find a position as a town manager, is that really only achievable when you've been at the lower position of a code enforcement officer? No. Who you are and no, not at all. Um, the some towns have very stringent retirement requirements for a town manager. Some don't. Some states are less or more lenient about about that position, but ultimately it's an appointed position. So you need votes. You don't need, you don't need education. You need votes. You can, they can put someone in who's completely unqualified to be a town manager and they will fail at the job. They will ultimately fail at the job, but, but they can appoint them. If it's a friend, if, you know, you, you say you're a, say you're a three member board, um, elected board of supervisors and uh, two of you have a friend and he says, and we need a town manager. And he says, I'll be your town manager. And they can just say, we'll appoint you. And here's what we'll pay you. And then he steps into the job with any no knowledge of what it takes. And and uh, yeah, and they generally fail because very quickly they do, they do wrong things. Now, I've just, we just had one, I'm not going to say names, but we had one where everything over in Pennsylvania, especially in Maine to a point, but in Pennsylvania, anything over $10,000 has to have three, three, you have to get three quotes, any kind of pro, any project, government project, anything over $20,000 has to be bid out. In other words, it has to be sealed bids. You have to, you have to have a description of, of the project. It has to be sent out to every contractor or there's an internet way of doing it now, but, but there's a, every contractor and then there's a deadline sealed. Bids, sealed bids are opened at a public meeting. The, the numbers are, and are read out, and then they can make a decision then, or make never make a decision. But they can then evaluate what the costs are going to be based on these estimates. Now, I know I know a uh, town manager who paved the whole road, well over twenty thousand dollars, and he just hired a contractor, a friend of his. He hired him. Why? Because he he said, well, it was an emergency. Yeah. In an emergency, you you can do certain things, but generally that emergency has to be something where the state also says it's an emergency. Like you've been declared a disaster area or this this snowstorm was, you know, crippled, crippled the crippled, you know, the town and caused all this damage. And and so yes, we're gonna make 
you know, emergency money is available to you, but it's strict. It's dealt with FEMA in Pennsylvania. It's it's Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency. It's the Federal Emergency Management Agency. You got to go through FEMA. You got to go through FEMA. You have to you have to have votes. You have to have plans. You have to. I mean, it's 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 very regulated. You just can't go out and say, oh, we have an emergency, so you go ahead and pay that road. And that's what he did. You know, and he 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 restricted other contractors from being able to have an opportunity to bid on that. I know another manager once who he had a township supervisor who had a son who had a truck in New York State, an industrial truck, and he and it was it needed it needed a new transmission. He had the manager write the descriptions of the truck that they wanted to buy used that matched that truck and only that truck. So the only bid that came in was from the son, his son, you know, and and that got and the town bought it, and then when it was delivered, it was towed in because it didn't have a transmission network. That kind of stuff I have seen, you know, and I've seen managers do that. But you don't have to be, but most managers go to school, get a bachelor's degree. Many of them have a master's degree in, in public administration. And, and in California here, you pretty much have to have that. In Maine, no. In Pennsylvania, is you could do it either way. You do it my way where you work your way up, or you can do it where you... Um, you get a degree and you're fresh out of college and they hire you. Interesting. So, in town knew, knew you because you've been there for a while as a code enforcer. 25 years, yeah. And I left. I mean, they, they kind of tried to offer me the job and they had some problems. And so they were they were uh, trying to figure out how to replace them. And they came, a couple of them came to me and said, there were five elected officials. Two of them came to me and said, we'd like to hire you. He's leaving in January, I'd like to hire you. And I said... Do you have the votes? Do you have three votes? Well, the third vote's on the fence, but he's about right. He's 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 going to make the he's going to make the move. And uh, I said, well, I'm interested. Well, I went to meeting after meeting, and that guy just it just never came up. It was even on the agenda, and he would just go, well, let's table that. And and I realized his he was not going to vote to change. And he was just mal. He was just you know saying what they wanted to hear, but he wasn't gonna, he wasn't going to take the action. And I was doing their codes and I left. I took a job with another town as their uh, zoning administrator and I left and I was gone six months. And at the end of six months, that guy didn't get reelected. Somebody else got elected. They called me up and said, we'd like, to, we'd like to consider you for this position. And I went back and I interviewed and they hired me, but I had to leave in order to get hired. And, and you know, I thought we did a good job the time I was there. I, I was proud of the work that we did as a town, as a, as a, as a group. Because it's not just a manager, it's everybody. So every committee, it's the environmental committee, it's the historical committee, it's all those committees working together. So would you say that really like fostering relationships, are there any like specific advice that you'd like to offer for somebody that also might be in a similar position to help build relationships? Because I would imagine Mm -hmm. as an enforcement officer, you aren't necessarily going to be building relationships unless you're working at it. So what did you do to work at it? You listen to people. Even the angry ones, you listen to them. You try to find solutions to problems and that satisfy as much as possible everyone involved in whatever that project, whatever that whatever that issue is. You, you know, ultimately your goal is to pull people together. So the best way to pull people together is to be positive, to be bold, move forward. The things that you can do yourself, 
do them and do them well. The things that you cannot do that you need help with, you, you know your community, know who the people are that will work with you to make the community better and know who the people are who are working against, who will work against you. And, and don't keep them out of the process because one of the things we learned was when somebody comes to a meeting and complains over and over again about this, that, this, and that, and they only do is complain, the best thing you can do is co-op that person by saying, hey, we have an opening on this committee. Why don't you join it? And then and they're like, you know what? I think I will. And then they, they join the committee. And six months later, seeing the other side of, of government, they they change and they moderate. And then they next, I had one where he was so adamant about plans had to be reviewed the moment they come in. And why do people have to wait a month for the engineer to review the plans? And he was adamant. And then he said, why don't you join the planning commission? Well, he did. He ended up becoming chair of the planning commission two years later. And he set up rules. Seven days prior to the meeting, you have to have the plans in or they're not going to get reviewed. <laughs> he set up the, the same rules he was opposed to. And it made him even more stringent because he was tired. He got to see the other side of it where engineers come in and basically throw a, a crappy plan. You know, yeah, roads across wetlands and stuff, a crappy plan. And, and then ask your engineer for advice. Like they're trying to get free engineering from the town engineer on their plan. They know their plan's not adequate. So they show up at the meeting and go, well, I, I did this plan. I was wondering what you thought of it. You know, and it's like, well, we have a regulation called the Subdivision and Land Development Ordinance. If you follow the ordinance and you use and you apply it to this land and to your development, you can figure out yourself, you know, how, how to draw this plan. You don't need our engineer to tell you. And you saw that enough from some certain same engineers who do that, that, that this guy who was so adamant about accommodating people that he turned the other way and, and he was very adamant about you have to follow the rules because we co-opted him. And I think for people that want to get involved in government, that's that's really important is that you have to work with people, but the people that who, who give you the hardest time, you have to give them more time. You know, you have to get them more time because even if they don't agree with you, trust is an important word, you know, to, to trust that you're coming from the same place every time. You're coming, you're, you, no matter how many times they ask you the question in a public meeting, your answer is going to be based upon the facts every single time. And so it, facts don't change. So, so your truth, they have to respect. So I, I think that that's important. You have to be, you, you cannot waffle to people and say, you know, oh, I agree with you or I agree with you and I agree with your side. Now I agree with your side. You have to say, no, I, I, first of all, I'm impartial because I'm the manager and, and I can't take a side. I see your points. I see your points. You know, now what's, where's the middle ground where we can maybe have a meeting? We'll all sit down and see if we can work out something. Again, you're co-opting people. Get the opposite sides to work together. And, and I think when you do that, you can be successful. You will never please everybody. My father taught that to me. He said, as long as 51% of the people that hired you <laughs> are on your side, you still have a job. As soon as you have 51% that don't, and it was so true. You know, you, you, have, to, you have to be true to yourself and true to your, your ethics and true to, to the regulations that your town has in place, you know, and to trust those. Trust that the people who developed them knew it, did them for a reason. And understand what that reason is and then you know don't you know don't radically change things when you get into office because people hate radical change you have to 
Change has to come subtle and slow. So that's that's my advice to somebody starting out. You know, and, and please, please, if you're young and you're you're getting into this business and you're gonna get into government, especially management, know your sexual harassment laws. Know that you can't say certain things. There's certain things you can't say. There's certain actions you can't take. And I've seen too many good people do really bad things that they shouldn't have done or said things they shouldn't have said. And it gets them in trouble. And even in a public meeting, if you're in a public meeting and you say the wrong thing, it's in the newspaper. You're, you'll get quoted. And you can't ever lose that quote. You can't ever lose what you say. So you have to be careful and, and be diplomatic at all times. You can't get mad at somebody if they're harassing you. You can't you know, yell and scream. You know, You have to like, I don't know how many times we sat in meetings where somebody was just railing on us from the public, just screaming and yelling and hollering about what worthless people we were. And one guy, he was he was giving us the high Hitler sign, and he thought he was calling us Nazis, and I, you know, he he was, and we had to sit there and just go, thank you for your comments. <laughs> My favorite was a John Birmingham, our, our chairman for years. Thank you for your comments. <laughs> Did you hear what I was saying? I'm saying you're an imbecile. I heard you. Thank you for your comments. You know, your comments are appreciated. Thank you very much. So you have to, you have to have, you have to be thick-skinned, and you have to understand that what people say is not who you are. You just have to stay true to your, to to what you're trying to do for the positive effect of the community, whether it's environmentally or otherwise. Your goal is to is to make that place better than you left it. That's your only goal because the seat you sit in, someone else will sit in later. You you, you know, it's you you're just basically keeping a seat warm until the next guy comes along. So the best thing you can do is leave the place better than you than you found it. And if you can do that, then you've had the success. And it doesn't it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, what are some of the ways you and others enjoy the rewards of your efforts, and what is the most rewarding part of your job? The rewards. The rewards in government? Well, maybe you mentioned some of the projects that did come about through maybe making concessions. Um, yeah, okay. So in in St. Albans, we we were able to negotiate with Maine Donald on a bridge that was necessary for a local businessman to be able to run his business. And it was a very large business. And they were gonna they had, they owned a bridge and they were gonna condemn it, and probably because his quarry trucks were damaging it when they were going across and so he, he may have been responsible for the damage but it was a state bridge and they were going to they were going to first they lowered the tonnage on it so it made it almost impossible for him to do his, his business run his trucks across and, and and he was the only business in town that was doing this so if you need stone for your driveway you weren't going to get it because the, or the costs are going to be higher and so we negotiated uh, with main dot uh, first time because they said it had never been done before an agreement where the town would pay 20%, Maine would pay 80% of the replacement bridge. And but once the bridge was completed, Maine would turn the bridge over to the town and the town would maintain it from then on. Now, yeah, that was a positive. That was a plus because the bridge right now today is being built. And that bridge will last for 75 to 100 years. A town won't have to worry about it. They'll have to maintain it, yes. But, but the bridge is a $1.2 million bridge. 
and this little town of 2,000 people couldn't afford 1.2 million, but they could, they could, they had enough finances available to be able to finance the 200,000, 250,000 that they're going to spend on their part of it. But that was, you know, you feel good about that. I got a grant from the feds from through the Senate Financial Committee. Uh, yeah, well, it's the big wigs. I can't think of the name of the committee now, but it was through Senator King's office because the St. Albans Town Hall is this beautiful old hall built in the 1900s. The upstairs, there's a ramp to the upstairs, which is the main hall, which has a stage and beautiful chandeliers. It's all been restored. But the town office is downstairs in the basement. And the only way to get there is to go downstairs. And the only way, to, and then the bathroom's down there. You have to like walk down this dark hallway and go up a little step and open a door. There's this bathroom that doesn't meet any kind of standards. And, and, and when I first arrived there, the elected officials were poo-pooing the fact that someone forced them to put the ramp in to go to the upstairs. Someone sued them to put the ramp in and, and then sued them a second time because it didn't meet, didn't meet standards. They had to tear it down and rebuild it to, to three years later, accepting a grant that I applied for, for the architectural study to put an elevator in so that people could take an elevator down and also to, to improve the bathrooms because there was enough room down there to make the bathrooms handicap accessible. Because they were like, well, if they can't go down the stairs, why do they need a handicap accessible bathroom? I go, well, you can't, if somebody comes in here in a wheelchair and applies for a job, you can't hire them because they can't go down the stairs. You can't hire them because they can't use the bathroom. And you are violating federal law. It is not just state law. It's federal law. You have to have a public building be handicap accessible. And they were opposed. I felt good at the end because I got, it wasn't a lot. I mean, I wanted a lot more money than they gave us, but they gave us, the feds gave us $23,000 to do the architectural study. The architectural company agreed to do it for $23,000 and the citizens approved it. And so the study has been done and I imagine they're on to their next step, which is uh, getting the grants and the funding to make those improvements. If they don't, then, you know, that happens in government. You know, you, you do your job and the next person comes in and doesn't follow up and the town goes, good, we don't have to worry about it until somebody sues them. And somebody will sue them. We had a lady slip and fall and hit her head on the steps and they took her off in an ambulance. We had another guy who, who lost both his legs in the, in, in the Gulf War and uh, he had prosthetic legs, but he didn't bring them one day. So he had his walker. So he threw the walker down the stairs to the office and he handstanded himself down, then kicked, not kicked, but he grabbed the walker with his one free hand. And then he went over and did his business with the town. But I'm, I'm sitting under my office as town manager and I'm watching this guy handstand down the railings. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm watching people come down with oxygen. Like, this is ridiculous. Or our, our way of handling that was, and they had a way to handle it. You beep your horn and the manager comes up and gets the paperwork from you at your car and then comes down and processes it and then comes back up and then you sign it and everything. Okay. And then, yeah, so the manager goes up and down the steps or the, or the clerk three or four times take care of you, ignoring the fact that it's not handicap accessible for the manager or for the clerk either. So when I had COVID and I barely survived it, I came out of the hospital and I went back to work. I had oxygen. I had to drag the tank down the stairs and drag this tank up the stairs. And I was like, you, we have to change this.
We have to start to change the way people think. So I was proud of the fact that we, we made progress on that, proud of the fact we made progress on the bridge. I was proud of the fact that the baseball, the baseball program completely fell apart privately and we adopted it, brought it back and made it something with me and the help of, uh, of his father of this kid that really wanted to have baseball. We brought it back and we, we got the town to, to finance it and we got it and we got those kids new uniforms and we got them playing ball. And so those kind of things, you know, I was involved uh, with the in Mount Bethel, the first joint July 4th parade between with Portland, the borough of Portland and the township of Mount Bethel, which surrounds Portland on three sides. They did a joint parade together. Now, it wasn't my idea. It was John Birmingham's. And he said he wanted to do it in three weeks. And I told him he was crazy, but we did it. And, and that was in 2016. And they're still doing it. It's now a tradition. They do it every year. Those things you go, I had an impact. You know, I had an impact on that. I had an impact on protecting the salamanders. I had an impact on, you know, the stormwater systems. I had a, you know, you, 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 when you go, when I go back to Pennsylvania and I, I'll, I'll drive through Mount Bethel, I'll go over to the park and I'll drive around the park and I'll look at the improvements that were made, the things that we started when I was manager and to see that, see the changes and see, you know, something simple as a basketball court, you know, that we put in a basketball court. Wow. You know, when I left, they didn't have the fence around it yet. I came back here later, the fence was around it. It was exciting. You know, like that's a, that's, that's as a manager, that's what you want. You want to to make improvements that the people can use. And the same with the uh, park, the uh, the parkland, the 170 acre park. You know, I walked. I walked. There's a railroad right away. The railroad was long since removed, but there's a railroad right away, and we walked. It's almost like a mile and a half along the boundary of this property along a stream. It's beautiful right away, but because of storms that they had, it knocked trees down all across it. And you, and you could barely get through some of it. But but when I came back, all that's been removed and there's been some trails. They started putting trail trails in. They have a, they had a trail plan they were working on. And when I go back again, I'll go back to that park because I want to see what kind of progress they made. We also got fish put in there. So we like we had fish stocked and I mean so people could go fish fish in the 13 lakes. Three of the 13 lakes were, were acceptable for fish. So we, we were able to do that. All these little things were successes that you're proud of. And every town manager, you know, if they're doing their job, they make progress. Yeah. So hearing all of that, as we wrap up really quickly, what yeah. resource, maybe a book or website or a film has been really helpful or inspiring to you? What film or book? Silent Spring is a book that was really important to me. River Runs Through It was a movie that was... Yeah, inspiring. You, how can they? How can they contact you or, or find you to maybe ask some additional questions? I'm available at uh, fishfirewrite at gmail.com. It's fishfirewrite, W-R-I-T-E. You know, like in Australia, you put a shrimp on the barbie. In Pennsylvania, you put another fish on the fire. Fishfirewrite, because I like to write at gmail. They can contact me there. I'm one of those guys that also writes songs. So, you know, Richard Dean Fisher, you can Google me. You'll find me. Thank you so much for taking all the time to share all these interesting stories and aspects of the work that you've done. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. 
If you haven't yet visited your local Green Online Hub, then please visit gogreenlocally.org and check out the directories for events, groups, businesses, online resources, and local support listings for your area. If you find something is missing, then let us know or just log in and add it. These are community free sharing directories. 